Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 25. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Today, my guest is Brianne Mosher. Brianne is a self-described history nerd and travel lover who lives in Nova Scotia with her family. I love talking with her for today's episode. Let's get to it. Brianne, welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it is my pleasure. Brianne, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a mother of three children, uh, six, four, and three months, and I homeschool them. I live with my husband in Nova Scotia, Canada, and we live on a little bit of property, and I read as much as I can with three children and homeschooling. Right. I'm so tempted to say something about Anne of Green Gables country. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It is Anne of Green Gables country, even though she was on the island, which is five hours from here. But it's five whole hours. It is. Oh, my geography needs help. (laughs) It it needs a visit to to Nova Scotia and PEI, and then it would be much better. Come anytime. anytime. (laughs) (laughs) That's in the. Oh man, I would. I would love to. And I seriously hope to make that happen one day. Okay, Brianne, tell us a little bit about what reading looks like in your life right now. Um, I read at quiet time, and I read before I go to bed at night because I it's my escape from all the busyness of the day, and it's how I learn new things. Not that I have any really space right now to learn new things because small children mm-hmm. and baby, um, but it is my greatest hobby and enjoyment. So I'm not, I don't do any crafting, any hobbies right now. I just read and take care of my children. <laughs> that sounds like enough to me. That sounds like a full yeah, life. It is. I can relate to that. Okay. Here's how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. What's a book you love? I love The Homemade Life by Molly Weisenberg. Yes, and tell us a little bit about that one. So Molly, it's about it's a memoir. It's a food memoir, um, and she it starts with um, it's been a while since I've read it, but it starts with her dad's death, which sounds really sad, but and she just she just talks through the role of food that it had in her dad's life and then her life as she 
grew up and then grows up and tries to figure out what on earth she's going to do with her life. She moves to Paris. She starts a blog and eventually winds up in Seattle owning a restaurant. And it's just a really beautiful, it's just a really beautiful story about family and love and travel and food. And I feel like I can travel through that. I have never lived in Paris, but mm-hmm. I want to <laughs> or at least go travel to Paris. Um, it's just a really, yeah, it's just a really beautiful book. I mean, there's recipes in it. Her chocolate cake is kind of famous and it is very, very good. Um, that's the only recipe I've made. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at making recipes from books. No, but if, if anyone is not very good about making recipes from books, this is the place to make the exception is that chocolate cake. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I remember being tempted to pickle all the things after reading that too. So there must be recipes for that. And I think there's something about pickled grapes. Yes. Yes. Well, and the, the, the book ends with their, um, hold on, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I want to, I want to say all the things about her personal life and what makes it interesting and unique. I'm like, well, if it's a memoir, is it a spoiler? I don't know. True. So the book ends festively. The book ends with a big festival and I want to throw a big party in our backyard and cook all the things and have lights and food and yeah, the pickles and, you know, roasted pig. And, well, I and think the, the author would be delighted that that is your reaction to, you know, thinking about her book. Yes. And then, uh, so two years ago we were traveling and we stopped at her restaurant in Seattle. Oh, so jealous. And it was just. That's called I, the Lancy. And there's a follow-up memoir by the, by the same name yes. um, for people who don't know. I think it's called, the subtitle is like a wife. No, a man, a woman, a restaurant, a marriage. So that was amazing. And I, I told my husband, like, I don't care. We just have to go in there. And it was, it was hectic because our children were young and we were on a long road trip. But um, it just made everything come, kind of come full circle. So that is, that is amazing. I'm so glad you got to do that. Yeah, it was really fun. Okay. A pizza place with yes. the kids. So did it, was it at all like what you imagined it would be? Or can you no. even remember now that you've actually been? It was nothing like I imagined it to be, but then when I read, I read Delancey after we went to the restaurant. Okay. And I was like, oh, okay, yes, I get it. And then I want to now go back there because I have more details. One day. Yeah. I hope you make it back. Okay. What's the second book you love? The second book I love, I actually chose a trilogy because I couldn't separate them. It's the Emily trilogy by Lucy Ma Montgomery. Well, for Emily, we'll give you that. Okay, so she is not nearly as well-known as Anne, so tell us about Emily. Emily is similar to Anne in that she was orphaned, and she has to go and live with relatives, um, except the relatives. Anne did not go to live with relatives. Emily is a quiet girl. She is an introvert, she, and she loves to write, and she has a huge imagination. But instead of talking it all out like Anne does, Emily writes and her greatest goal in dreamy life is to become a writer. So she lives with her two, her two maiden aunts and her cousin, I think it is, maybe it's an uncle who is a little bit simple from a farm accident. And it just follows her. I think the book start, the trilogy starts when she's like, I want to say eight and it follows her up until she is an adult. And it's all of her adventures, her friendships, her schooling, her dreams, her imagination with the fairies in the moonlight and wishing houses 
could be in, inhabited. Um, and it's just a really, it's more thoughtful, I think, than Anne. It's uh, much more introspective, and I'm much more of an introspective introvert writer type person, so I relate really well with Emily. Um, and it's a beautiful story. of a, It's a coming-of-age story, really. Um, and it's set on PEI. So the descriptions of the island are beautiful. And it always makes me want to fill up huge notebooks of random writings and then go outside and, you know, dance in the moonlight and plant all the flowers and... Yeah, (laughs) that's a great reaction, you know, sporadically and whimsically. Yeah. Okay. So I think readers are going to want to know what made you choose Emily over Anne, the better known, you know, more, more universally beloved one. I relate more to Emily. Um, She's, she's quieter. She's more complex. Um, I mean, Anne is complex, but Emily is like, there's like layers, more layers to to Emily and I feel like everyone knows Anne like everyone mm-hmm. even people who haven't read the books um, Emily I feel like Lucy Maud put a little bit more of herself in Emily mm-hmm. and I'm not a huge talker I am more of a thinker writer and so I relate to that aspect of Emily over Anne so it's a really personal thing for you it's very personal yeah mm-hmm. I think, I think Emily would approve as, as would Anne, but you know, I mean, I love, I love Anne. She's not really in this picture here. So, all right. What's your third book, Brianne? My third book is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And, um, is that how the Canadians say it? Because here in Kentucky and in Chicago and Virginia, where, where I've lived, it's always Jane Eyre. Oh, it could be Jane Eyre. I've always said Jane Eyre. No, Jane. <laughs> Sorry. I'm losing it. Um, it. It's always Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Okay. Tell us about Jane Eyre. <laughs> Jane Eyre is uh, – she's an orphan. I seem to have a thing for orphans today. Um, she's an orphan who is pretty much abused by her aunt and cousins. Not She was – raised by them. Her aunt was her guardian until she was shipped off to boarding school. At the end of boarding school, she answered an ad for a nanny and a nanny slash companion for a little girl off in the wilds of England. And she went to live via this companion to this little girl, Adele. I think I wish to say. (laughs) So she ends up falling in love with Adele's guardian, but then there is a huge, big catastrophe, and Jane leaves. She leaves her. She leaves her charge, Adele. She leaves a man that she is in love with, and she goes to live with um, a group of siblings to repair her broken heart, and. It's a book that I've read probably – I keep on coming back to it, and I don't even know why because it's a sad book. There's no – it's not hopeful. Like it doesn't end with a super happy ending or the ending that you want to – that you want. You, it, nothing that gets wrapped up neatly. Mm-hmm. 
but the descriptions of Jane's thoughts and Jane's life, like she lives a very, very cloistered life with her aunt as a small child. She lives a very, very cloistered life at the boarding school. It's a boarding school for orphans. It's a, I think it's a convent or something. It's not attractive. And then when she goes to be Adele's governess, the world becomes her oyster because she can do whatever she wants with Adele. It's a very hands-off relationship with her um, Adele's guardian. And she's exposed to things that she's never been exposed to. And she sees a world like it start. It's as if the book starts out in black and white and then it goes into full blown color. Mm-hmm. And then it dims down again mm-hmm. as she breaks her heart. And then it kind of, it, 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 she grows up and she realizes that she doesn't have to depend on other people so much for her happiness and for the color in her life. And she realizes that she can be, the master of her own happiness. So in that sense, it, it ends happily. Yes. And Charlotte Bronte just had what would have been her 200th birthday recently. So there's been a whole lot of talk about Jane Eyre and the ongoing um, influence of her works in the culture. And it's been really interesting to hear the theories about why it has such staying power, you know, like why is this book one that's beloved by like, you know, 12 year olds and 60 year old women and men and, yeah. The the underdog story is a big theory. Like at heart, everybody believes they're an underdog and they want to root for Jane. It's so true. Yeah. That and Jane's not like her lesson is, I read one author describe how you don't have to be like Vogue magazine cover material to like be your own heroine. So or master of your destiny or all that. Yeah, it's so true. She's very she's very realistic. Yes. Okay. Love your favorites. Tell me what you hate. Okay. I This is the hardest thing for me because if I hate a book, I'll just like, meh, it's probably not for me at this time mm-hmm. or something. I like to be very gracious towards books. Yes. So the book I hate. <laughs> we appreciate that, but. <laughs> the book I hate, and it's not, I feel like I need to say all sorts of caveats here. Right. Because it's not the story I hate. It's the actual literal book and that book is lame as rap what do you mean it's the book and not the story i love the story of uh-huh. lame as rap i love the movie adaptation that just came out a few years ago uh-huh. love it so uh-huh. much but the book the book is it's huge it's like over a thousand pages and i got it out from the library to start reading it and the first 21 pages are describing the priest's location and it's so much so many words for so much good story like the story gets lost in so many words so i abandoned it because there's just no way that i could read it right now maybe if i had like a summer off from everything else in my life i could you know get through it <laughs> you could you could persevere and conquer the big obstacle. How far have you made it through that one? I made it halfway through the first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I was like, oh my goodness! Like it's it doesn't even it's just setting the scene. I mean, it's setting the scene really well. But the first chapter is all about setting the scene for like obscure details that I will not remember, and I don't think have that much bearing on the overall story. Uh huh. 
but I mean, it's translated from the French, so that could have some. I know. I always wonder about that. Like, is that why it feels opaque to me if a book is in translation? I read that after, um, I hadn't seen, I don't think I'd seen the musical, but I'd heard like my parents had a recording. It might've been a vinyl and I really, really loved it when I was in like say eighth grade. So I wanted to read the book when we were assigned to read, just pick any classic for (laughs) middle school. And so I chose it. I remember being like, this is fine. And I think I felt like really like wise because I was reading this big fat book by Victor Hugo, but like, where's the story? Where's the story they're singing about? Cause I'm having a really hard time finding it here. It's yeah. It's so true. So, I mean, if there was like an ultra abridged version, then I would read it. But for now. There totally is. You can get one of those adorable, cozy classics um, (laughs) where they do, they condense classic works of literature down to like 24 really gorgeous, felt, crafted. There might be words in them. There might be like 12 words in the whole book. Those are my favorite. Right. But I, I don't think that's actually what you had in mind. <laughs> I was thinking a few more words, but <laughs> <laughs> if you have another baby, I'm totally sending you that. That would be awesome. Very nice. Okay, Brian, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I am reading Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. How's that going for you? It's beautiful. I love it. And you like the the gorgeous kind of thoughtful prose? You like that? I love that. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's taking me so much longer than I thought. It's not a it's not a big book at all. But I find myself stopping every few paragraphs to just sit and muse over what he just said. Because the the way he writes about ordinary life is very, very beautiful. So and it's not it's not like a it's not a cliffhanger book. It's not a book that will keep me up past my bedtime or anything. It's just a very ordinary story of an ordinary woman, but it's written in a very beautiful beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to sound super defensive here, but you have Anne of Green Gables at least five hours away, but Wendell Berry's right up the road from me. Not that I get to go like to lunch on his farm or anything, but you know, it, at least I have something when I feel in green with envy later about your proximity to PEI. Yeah. yeah. Now I feel like I need to go back to Kentucky. So maybe we can, we'll just plan to like visit each other or something. I support this plan. <laughs> what else oh. are you reading right now? I just finished um, Under Pressure, Under Pressure, Putting the Child Back in Childhood by Carl Henri. Okay. So that's like a nonfiction learning kind of book? Yes. What's that like? I mean, how's it going for you? It's going really well. Um, He wrote another book called In Praise of Slow. And this book is more, it's the same idea. Like we just need to slow our lives down and let kids be kids. It's along the same lines as um, books like Free Range Parent or Free Range Children and Lost, Last Child in the Woods. And it's a lot of things that I already knew, but it's just it was just a good read to be like, okay, it's good to kick the, the kids outside and they can play with sticks and mud. And we don't need to be on our screen, you know, have screens so much. And it's good to let the kids have take risks and all of that. I like to read a book like that every few months just to remind me of where we're going and for solidarity and some of the choices that we've made as parents. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I can appreciate that. Is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? I would love to be able to, to be, uh, to get better at tracking the books I read. Uh huh. What does that look like for you right now? I use Goodreads. Mm -hmm. Just, I just like, jot down the titles that I read every month, Mm -hmm. but I don't have a system for saying, you know, love this book, read it again, hated this book, Mm -hmm. 
would not recommend it, that kind of stuff. And I don't love Goodreads being on online. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to get like a journal or something mm-hmm. to have more of a reading life journal. Mm-hmm. So. What's the obstacle? I mean, that sounds so simple. Like, why not just do it? But that's a big, big struggle for a lot of people. Yeah. Is, you know, they wish they had something, but just actually doing it is tough. What is it that's holding you back? I mean, can you, can you tell? Do you know? Just making it a priority. Yeah. And just being like, I'm going to do this. And then, I mean, honestly, I could probably just, I just need to like print the one that you made. I just need to print that off and start using it. Yeah. But starting right. is... I don't know. It's, for something like this, it's just so much easier for so many people to keep going. But deciding on what system they're going to use feels like a really big deal. Because reading is something a lot of people do every day. So it's like, okay, I need a system I can live with for a long time. And that can feel a little daunting. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Maybe we can have an episode sometime. We've gotten requests to talk in detail about how people track their books. And I'm fascinated, but a little afraid that I'll get all insecure about what I'm doing now. That would be awesome. But maybe that would help you out. It would. Yeah. Okay. So there are some common themes to your books. I'm curious about if you see them. I'm sure you see some of them. Um, I'm wondering how much is coincidence. But we're going to diagnose your picks and get you some new titles right after the break. Readers, welcome back. Brienne, I really resonate with your picks. Your favorites are books I've read and loved, although I think we chose them for um, different reasons sometimes, which is fun. You've chosen books about women who had to learn to be strong because life threw some stuff their way and they had to rise to the challenge, and they did. And whether the story is written in first person or third, these books show us these women's lives through their own eyes. Like we get their side of the story, their version of the events, and we as the reader have the privilege of walking alongside them as they get a little older and a little wiser and go through some stuff and really come into their own. Does that sound right to you? That, that is, yes, that is uncanny. Are you, are you on the hunt for books like that? Yes, because that has been the story of my life for the past few years, actually. And I feel like I'm kind of coming out of some stuff and that is very, very interesting. Wow. I had not put all that together. Interesting. Well, I'd love to see, you know, I have I'm the mother of girls. You're the mother of girls. But even if you just live in this world and you care enough about books to listen to this podcast, like, you know, it's probably a good thing for young people to be reading books with strong female protagonists, you know, spunky, gutsy girls and women and ladies. But I don't know that we really ever grow out of that. So I love that you chose those. Okay. So you've also chosen books and you seem to have noticed this about women who've lost one or both of their parents. And that's had a serious impact on their life. I mean, obviously it does, but that's very present in these stories. So in a homemade life, the memoir, it's set in motion when the author's father dies and she's consumed by grief and doesn't know what to do with herself. And so she goes to Paris to figure it out. And that's what sets us off on the story. And Jane and Emily are orphans and they're in the circumstances they're in explicitly because their parents died when they were children. And I'm thinking you didn't set out to choose orphan books, but you know, there it is. And we're not going to find you a list of orphan books to read because... Thank you. <laughs> that Right, exactly. First, that seems like cheating. That's a little too obvious. And secondly, like, 
what a depressing list. <laughs> Except I remember reading someone saying once that there are like orphans are way overrepresented in literature, especially children's literature, because it's a simple um, plot trick, seems like the wrong word, but plot device, how about, that um, gives the character instant sympathy. So immediately your heart goes out to them and so true. You, you want to cheer them on from the get-go. So, you know, I bet we could come up with a long list, but we're not going to give it to you. Um, but we are going to be cognizant of choosing books with strong female characters and an emphasis on family relationships where who, who you are living with and who you lost matter. And even though you chose one modern book and two that are over a century old, I'm going to go with contemporary picks because I suspect you know a way your way around the classics already. And as a rule, it's easier to find good old books than good new books. That is so true. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like time has already shown us what titles could endure and the cream's already had a chance to rise to the top. But with new books, just the contemporary section of the bookstore can be overwhelming. So that's the direction I'm going to lean with these. Does that sound okay? That sounds fantastic. Okay, excellent. Let's see. Let's try these on. <laughs> Book one is The Language of Flowers by Vanessa Diffenbaugh. What do you know? I have seen it at the bookstore, and I know the title, but I don't know anything about the book. Okay. This is Diffenbaugh's debut, and she introduces us here to her character, Victoria Jones. And we meet her on her 18th birthday, which obviously is a big deal in – it's a big deal yeah. for a kid. You know, 18, you're an adult and it's, you're growing up. But as you get oriented in the story, you realize that this is a rite of passage on a whole other level. This is the day she's becoming an adult in the eyes of the law. And so she's being emancipated from the foster care system. So yeah. as you get to know her on this morning, when she's literally like setting out on her own into the world, like physically and mentally and emotionally and all the ways, um, she's angry, she's bitter, she's cynical, and she's not great at expressing or even dealing with these emotions, especially like communicating them to other people. And that's where the language of flowers come in. And that title and the concept in the book is a reference to the Victorian Aries uh, literal language of flowers, which they relied on to convey feelings that maybe weren't so polite to mention out loud, like love and lust and friendship and jealousy and envy and infidelity and grief were all represented by different plants. So she can't talk about her emotions, but she is fluent in the language of flowers and she can express them. So if she gives you a bouquet of yellow tulips, you know, I'd be like, oh, that was nice of you, but maybe it wasn't at all. Maybe she was sending you a very passive aggressive message. So she strikes out on her own and she comes to learn that the language of flowers is more complicated than she was taught to believe. And the story goes all back into who taught her and why and how and what that means for her now and what it meant for her then. And just that uh, relationships are nuanced and emotions come with more than one uh, facet, like maybe maybe lust and love can go together, or maybe jealousy can go with, I don't know, hatred. That's too obvious. Maybe love and regret can be represented by the same plant. So the prose here isn't hard to read. It is an interesting concept, but it's easy to grasp the way Diffenbaugh lays it out. But the story has real emotional depth. So emotionally challenging, but ultimately it's a redemption story. How does that sound? That sounds fascinating on so many levels. Yeah. I love the language of flowers. 
I've studied it a little bit, but not for really. I knew it existed, but I didn't. I didn't know anything about it when I read the book and found it very interesting. And I think I might be crazy, but I think Diffenbaugh has done like a little spinoff language of flowers book. That's, you know, beautiful illustrations and all that. And now I want to go, now I want to go find it immediately. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Book two has a totally different feel. It is Jane Steele by Lindsay Fay. It's new. It came out in March. Do you know anything about it? I know that it just came out and that's pretty much all I know. And it's like a, it has something to do with Jane Eyre, right? my off there or no you're right yeah. it's okay. it's not a retelling although it does draw serious okay. inspiration from her and if you've seen it like i've noticed banner ads i mean of course i'm being targeted by google because i google books all the time and you know they know they know how to find me and what to send me um but you may have seen the banner ads like on goodreads with a picture of the it's an eye-catching graphic cover and big bold text in these ads that says reader i murdered him instead of the famous reader i married him line from jane Eyre and you know, that's witty and all, but I think that's giving some readers the wrong idea because recently I was asking a friend if she'd read it and it came out that she thought from the marketing, it was going to be a really sinister book and it's, it's just not. Um, so it's not a retelling, although okay. it leans heavily on the Bronte. Um, if you've read anything by Deanna Rayborn or another author who writes plucky Victorian heroines, yes. that's, have you? Yes. Is, how does, how did those work out for you? I really like them a lot. Okay. Well, yeah. that we are firmly in that territory with Jane okay. Steele. So okay. she is a wisecracking, whip smart, unconventional young woman. Some of the language is a little salty, but as I recall, that's by the standards of the day, not like a Paul, not like you wouldn't want your grandmother to see you reading it now. But this is actually, we were talking about Jane Eyre and underdogs. This is the, um, this is an underdog story. So Jane Steele is in a bad situation, rebelling against Victorian convention, but she has a heart of gold. And you learn very quickly when she's put into that first situation that sends her fleeing from the law that you're, you're safe to cheer her on. And there are numerous nods to Jane Eyre here. She, she becomes a governess. There's a stand-in for Mr. Rochester, although that is not his name. There's some important stuff locked away in an attic. It's not a person. So so it's fun for Jane Eyre fans, but yeah. readers don't need to worry that this is one of those modern interpretations that turns out to be a big letdown because that's that's just not what the author is doing here. So you don't need to think like, oh, like um, Curtis Sittenfeld's Eligible is coming out in April. And a lot of readers are like, oh, you know, I'm so excited, but what it, what if she ruins Pride and Prejudice? And that that's a retelling. We are not with that with Jane Steele. So you can just relax and enjoy it. What do you okay. think? That sounds really, really good. I'm glad to know that it's not a retelling because when I first saw some buzz about it, I'm like, oh, really? I, I'm not really a fan of – some retellings are good, but so um, most I've not loved. So I'm excited to know that it's not a retelling and it sounds something that I would really like. Excellent. Glad to hear it because book three is a stretch pick. <laughs> we're, okay. we're, we're reaching on this one. Um, but I, so I think this could win big or just, you could be like, no, it is astonish me by Maggie Shipstead. What do you know about it? I've actually had it from the library. It's about a ballet dancer. Right? Yes, it is. Okay. That's a good start. Um, 
Yes, this book is set in the rarefied world of professional ballet, and it's really not like anything I've ever read in form and content. So this story is told over 30 years from four different viewpoints, and it sweeps you into the world of classical ballet, which sitting there in your chair, you might not know that you've been dying to know more about ballet, but um, Maggie Shipstead just like picks you up and plops you in and you're like, oh, this is, this is not what I expected. Oh, and speaking of not what I expected, it's a novel about ballet. So if you're imagining sweet little girls with tutus and buns, that is only the beginning. There is a lot of salty language and there's a lot of cocaine, which I was just really, really surprised. So if that makes you need to reach for your own smelling salts, just keep on moving from okay. this one. Okay. And some of the flashbacks are a little wobblier than others, but her characters are really richly drawn and the storytelling is really strong. And a reason I picked it for you is because it is about ballet, but underneath it all, it's about family relationships and parentage and identity and falling in love with a person you don't belong with, falling in love with the person right in front of you. Um, there. So we're main, I think of Joan as being the main character. She's a young American dancer, but that she's one, she's one of four people, but she helps a Soviet ballet star who's loosely based on Barishnikov. And I had to read about that because I'm, he was enough before my time that I just didn't know that much about him. Um, she helps him defect and that's in 1975. So we're flashing back from roughly okay. modern time to the seventies and so it is interesting about the ballet, but the the strong emphasis on family and identity, and even though Joan is old enough to be a professional dancer, um, this isn't exactly coming of age, but it is very much coming into your own. And there's a younger girl who who's one of the four characters narrating the story who is also coming into her own in a very unconventional way. And it's just... It's it's a reach for you, uh, although it does give me comfort to know you've checked out the library. But so many of the themes are similar that I'm, I'm I'd be curious to hear you give it a try. I that sounds fascinating. I read another. Um, well, actually, it was a memoir of a ballerina and learned so much more. So this sounds this sounds really really good, and it's been on my radar. Like I had it from the library. But I just didn't get a chance to read it. So now this is another nudge to... Oh, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> yes. And sometimes I need a nudge. So I hope that provides it. Brianne, what do you think you'll read next? I am going to let the library decide. I'm going to go over to the library's website and request them all and we'll see what happens. Which I love that strategy. Let us know what it is. I will. Thanks for talking books with me today. Oh, this is so fun, Anne. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brianne today. Please head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for what Brianne should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 25. Those are the numerals two, five. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. 
You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.